Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the La Rouge Rugby Podcast. And I'm joined, as always, by Derek Brissett. But this time, we have a very special guest joining us. The Player of the Year from the San Diego Legion and Canadian International, Michael Smith, is joining us. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Uh, it's uh, great to be on here. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um so when we have all these interviews, we always start with the same old questions, um, just so everyone can get involved. Um, so what got you started in rugby to begin with? Well, it was uh, a happy coincidence uh, that happened during school. So um, I didn't really know anything about rugby um, all the way up until high school. And then as soon as I got into high school, my uh, grade eight gym teacher, uh, Adam Roberts, um, he uh, sort of identified me and was like, hey, do you want to come out and try playing rugby? And um, played that year for my school. I went to Earl Marriott um, over in uh, Vancouver uh, in British Columbia. And that was my first introduction to it. And then played that year for like a team BCU 14 team and then didn't look back really. So it was, that, that was really my first introduction was him. And I have a, a lot of uh, credit I owe to him. Uh, Adam Roberts for getting me into it. And it was nice. He was able to kind of coach me again um, during my under 20 uh, year uh, when we went to uh, Romania, where he was the forwards coach uh, for that team. So have a lot to owe to him. I still keep in touch with him a lot. I actually gave, I think it was my, my first starting cap Jersey to him um, after I played for Canada. So that was a really special moment for me. So. Yeah, that's actually uh, that's a thing I think I've kind of noticed, like interviewing some players. A lot of guys seem to enjoy going back to like, you know, somebody influential in their career and giving like either like the first cap jersey back to them. Is that like sort of a uh, like a tradition for like a lot of the Rugby Canada guys? Or is that like obviously, you know, maybe personal choice, depending on who's had an impact on whose lives? Exactly. I, I think it's a personal choice. I know that like everyone, they really like to hold on to those uh, first jerseys. And I know for uh, what we've done for Team Canada, like when I got my first one against Wales, um, that's something, you know, the trading your jersey is a tradition as well. Um, but obviously, if it's your first cap, you want to hold on to it. So what Team Canada has kind of done is they say, okay, for your first cap only, you get two jerseys. Um, so then you can trade one and hold on to the, the one that you wore almost. So um, yeah, I traded mine uh, in Wales with a Tane Basham, and he's been doing well for uh, the Welsh teams as well. So that's pretty cool. Um, but I still have mine, and then I gave it to my parents. Um, and then, and so, and then I think I gave my first start because I was on the bench for the Wales game. I gave my first start to Adam. So, um, but yeah, for me to go back and sort of be with the high school where I first got that start, I think that's a personal choice. But I know a lot of guys, uh, they have a lot to give for their home club or their home school, wherever they got their start, which is pretty special for them. And so, and it's a good opportunity to bring a backpack full of old kit as well. I'm sure if, if anyone's been playing for a long time, they've got tons and tons of shorts and socks and kit they don't wear anymore. That's just filling up their closet. So, and I remember being a high school kid too, receiving kit from like Jordan best and guys like that, that I grew up with um, from the same area so it was cool to sort of see that and then be able to do that again so really cool and obviously uh yeah having Tane Basham's uh jersey and um you know another team in red so that's uh, yes <laughs> yeah that, that seemed to be my kind of thing anyway 
Um, so you talked about the um, people who've had an influence on when you started playing, um, but has there been anyone that any time that they've stepped onto the pitch, whether it be at a, a club level or international level, that you just love to watch play? Uh, yeah, that that's a really good question. So, like, I having started playing rugby only in 2012, like the first World Cup I really watched was in 2015. So I didn't really know too much about about rugby before that. And I didn't, I didn't watch a lot of it as well. Um, I, I was a big hockey guy growing up, as I'm sure you probably know from it, like any kid that's grown up in Canada. Um, and so I continued to play hockey every fall and I, I stuck with that up until grade 12. But I would always watch Team Canada play, especially uh, back in like 2012 onwards. And the one guy that I would sort of watch and like idolize was John Moonlight. Um, he was a guy that I would be like, okay, he does the 15s and the sevens. He's a flanker. He's a captain. He's a role model, good leader, hard worker. So I idolized him a lot in that. And unfortunately our paths, our paths, uh, they never crossed on the field in terms of when I was able to play at that higher level, he was already gone. So um, it would have been fun to do that, but I think he signed one of my hats when I saw him at uh, the Vancouver sevens one time back in like 2016 or something so i've still got that to hold on to but um no yeah um he was always an inspiration for me based on kind of what he'd done with the canadian team uh but yeah um probably more of a local guy connor sampson uh that i played with out at ubc that guy is just one of the hardest workers i know but he's got a smile that lights up the room and if there's anyone that has fun when they play rugby you you look to connor and He's just like a ray of sunshine. And that's someone that, you know, is able to remind you of why you play the game and, you know, in hard games and tough games, and especially the spell we're going through with team Canada as well. Um, you need a bit of that, like, like that fun in the game again. Right. So, yeah. So um, as somebody that's like, you said, you kind of started watching or at least the first world cup that you watched was around 2015. And uh, I guess obviously going to a couple of the sevens tournaments and stuff, what's it been like watching the, uh, the, like the, I guess the Canadian sevens leg in Vancouver grow over the past, like six, seven years. And uh, did you ever have any like kind of desire to play sevens? There seems to be a lot of guys that early on in their career, they kind of go back and forth between the two a little bit. That's a great question. Yeah. I did. I absolutely did have a, an aspiration to play sevens. Um, it was actually the first tournament in 2016. I was um, with, I think we were the U18 BC Elite Youth Sevens team back when it was like that that name. Uh, we were playing under Shane Thompson was our coach. And back in that 2016 tournament, you played around Burnaby Lake. And then if you made it to the final, you got to play in the stadium. Mm. So I think there's a picture of... Uh, our team there in BC place for the first ever games. And I'm on the field with all the guys and we're hoisting the cup and everything. So we, we won that year, which was awesome. And so that was always like, I loved playing, uh, playing that code. And then, um, but then obviously you go to UBC and um, the, we only ever had tournaments um, from then on past sort of that high school age. So I was able to play like U 17 U18 tournaments playing sevens, like going to Las Vegas and Vancouver and uh, the Victoria International Sevens when we had that. I have a lot of uh, good experiences with that. Um, but yeah, then you sort of just transition into the 
U15s and you're doing your U18s, U20s stuff with UBC. But I always sort of kept that in the back of my mind that like, that's something that I would want to do and something I could see myself being involved in. And I guess I kind of had this idea that, so I'm graduating school in 2020 from UBC, the Olympics is in 2020. And then after that, all those guys are going to retire. And then I can, you know, move to the island and start playing with them. And then obviously COVID happens and that sets everything back a year and all, all this crazy stuff happens. So when I came to the island in 2020, there was, you know, I couldn't be involved with the Stevens team because they're a year out from the Olympics. They're not really taking any, you know, new players. They've got their roster. It'd be pretty hard to crack. Um, but then I get this incredible opportunity to go to San Diego that I'm not going to turn down. Right. And then, um, and then I go to San Diego, the Olympics happen and they start to fill this brand new team while I've now been capped with the 15s team, uh, playing, uh, against, uh, England and Wales that summer. So then I guess I, I, I've never really found an in to that program yet. Um, is that something I would be open to exploring in the future? Yes. Um, but am I happy with being with the 15s program and going to San Diego as well? Absolutely. Yes. Um, it's just, you know, having the ability to explore both options as well, I, I think is exciting. So yeah, it's uh, a thing I would still be quite open to. And I'm, I'm always trying to see if, you know, there's an opportunity open, but uh, just, going with the flow and keep performing at the highest level that I can. And, you know, you sort of end up where you end up. So. And uh, you, you kind of mentioned while you were um, there that, you, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time at UBC. Uh, you guys won two national championships while you were there. You were the captain for your last two seasons there. Um, can you just kind of talk, uh, speak a little bit too about what it was like playing for the Thunderbirds uh, under Curry Hitchborn and, um, you know, your experience there and uh, like, I guess just the Canadian university rugby scene as a whole right now. And what do you think of the uh, current state of it too? Awesome. Yeah. A um, lot to comment on there, I guess, but I'll sort of start from uh, like my experience in particular. So going to UBC was a no brainer uh, for me. Both my parents had gone to UBC. My brother was going there. Like my grandparents had gone there. It was a huge alumni thing at that school. So that was always the priority for me. And then to have such a great program out at UBC as well, um, that just made things all the better. The one thing that I sort of took out of my experience at UBC that was a step up from say high school or any of the Canadian U18 stuff that I had done was the like more professional environment, having like trainings like pretty much every day where you're either in the gym every night um, or you're on the field three times a week, three, four times a week, which is a lot more than a lot of the club teams that we play against in, in the competition. Um, and then it was uh, like playing men's was a huge, huge step up as well. I, I always attribute that to the fact that I really only chop tackle. I don't know if you guys have seen a lot of seen a lot of my games, but yeah. I, I like I, I make a lot of tackles, but I don't hit guys up high all too often. I guess that's still the 18 year old me trying to chop down 30 year old dudes playing for Lomas on a Saturday. So. <laughs> Just, you know, you're not going to get bowled over if you hit them low. So I, I guess that's kind of how I learned that. And you learn to grow up really quick in that league. Um, and that's something I feel like 
in the Canadian university scene as a whole, that's something that say the schools out East could uh, benefit from is, you know, they've got great programs as well. They've got those professional environments, but really testing yourself against like higher, higher levels and like um, higher standards of play, I think is something that um, UBC and UVEC have really uh, benefited from as well as the length of the season as well. Like obviously we're, we're, able to play like September to May and we only yeah. take a month off for Christmas as well. So there is quite the disparity there in terms of playing schools from out East and out West, but it has a reason. And I wouldn't say that has anything to do with the coaching or the quality of the programs at East. I think they're doing an awesome job and they should keep that up. Hopefully we can encourage more of a, like East to West coast competitions and more frequent competitions as well. That can help elevate that standard of play. So that's probably what I'd say for the Canadian university tournaments. I think it's awesome for the teams out East to have sort of that ability to compare themselves against the teams out West. Um, but I say that as well as like programs like Queens have done quite well against UBC and UVEC, but yeah. And then I guess um, I have a lot of thanks to give to uh Thanks to gives to guys like Curry Hitchborn, Bruce Rayner, and uh, Ramses. Uh, and they were sort of my core group of coaches I had when I first started. And a lot of the opportunities that I had was just good timing. Um, sort of when I was in my first year, I was starting for the Braves, which was like the, like the, like the Div 2 team. Um, and so I got a lot of playing time in that. Um, and then as soon as I got into year two, um, a lot of those older guys, they graduated or they went to the MLR, like uh, Nakai Penny, um, Connor Hamilton, Connor Whale. Um, and so I was able to sort of move into a position where I could start for the top team and play a lot more. And so I was very, very fortunate for that because I know there are some athletes that, you know, they don't get that break until their third or fourth year. Um, we, we were able to have some great years and um, I loved playing with all those guys as well. And um, yeah, still would have been nice to get that last uh, championship uh, where we lost by a point in uh, against UVEC, but um, can win them all, right? And I'm super happy for those guys uh, at UVEC as well, and all of them have gone on to great things as well. So, you know, it's it's always nice to have some, you know, good competition to play against. So Obviously, you've played now for the Canada men's senior 15 but you've also played for um rugby canada under 20s and the revived pacific pride program so what was it like to be in those uh two different programs as well as going through um the ubc thunderbirds as well yeah so uh probably the biggest thing i'd say off the bat is that the communication between sort of the ubc programs um, or the, the university programs in general and the Canada programs, that communication for allowing players to go and play and represent their country ha has improved dramatically. And I'm a huge fan of it in Canada being aware of the commitments that a student will have um, to be able to be available for these tours, but also the ability for the school itself to recognize these players want to go play and compete and become like a better player as well to represent their country. And that in tune, you know, 
brings good publicity for the school. It makes them a better athlete for when they come back to school and everything. So I think continuing that partnership that we have between the universities and the Canadian programs is something that's only going to make um, our country stronger, you know, at playing rugby and giving these kids the opportunities that they need um, to compete at a higher level. So I'm a huge fan of that and I hope it keeps improving. Um, my under 20 year, that was really the first year where I felt like a professional felt like, um, I was able to focus on my abilities as an athlete primarily, not have to worry about anything else. So I'm not sure if it's still the same for the under 18s and under 19 programs and such, but U20 for us was the first year that you, you didn't have to pay to play with the team. Um, so previous years, under 18s and under 19s, there was a fee associated with, you know, travel to, like I went to Ireland with the under 18s with Dean Merton and a whole bunch of guys and guys had to pay for that tour. Um, and you didn't have the same amount of time in camp. It was, you fly over and you meet them on tour. Whereas with the under 20s, because of the support of the Canadian Rugby Foundation um, and guys like, you know, Pat Parfrey and Carl Fix and like these guys that have like been the bedrock of helping uh, support Canadian rugby. Um, we were able to assemble for like a two week camp at Shawnigan Lake, full, full, full room and board um, for like a good two weeks during the summer to prepare to um, fly to Houston and play against the States um, in those two legs that we played um, down there. And that really felt like that was uh, a huge uh, difference maker for us in terms of seeing who was best fit to play in those games and then allowing those players to develop their skills. Like we brought guys in for the camp and then ultimately we picked a team and then flew to Houston without a few of those players. So there was competition for selection in that camp. And then it was, okay, we're at camp and we're competing to be the best. Um, and that can be a, and, and so I think that was a huge deal for us to have that time together before we left. And also to be like, we weren't paid to be on tour. Um, that's something we are with the men's, um, just compensated for our time and taking time away from work and other things. And in the under twenties as well, that can be a huge difference maker for a, a lot of guys, uh, to be able to take that same amount of time away. Um, because that time with the team is so important. And I think that was a big contributor to our success as well. So, yeah, it's uh, awesome to hear the, uh, you know, the developments that uh, all the, uh, the age grade programs in Canada are making. And um, you, you did kind of mention your tackling ability, which uh, the chop tackles and stuff, which is something <laughs> I believe the San Diego Legion certainly enjoyed this year. Uh, you led the team in tackles. You were named uh, the player of the year there as well. And um also found yourself top three in the league. So, I mean, it's the, the UBC tackling techniques working out well for you. Um, but um, to switch uh, to MLR now, what uh, made San Diego the uh, preferred destination for yourself when you were uh, signing uh, your first MLR contract? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I wish I um, was able to tell you that I had all 12 teams like knocking at my door being like, Mike, Mike, we want to, we want to sign you. We, we want to pay you top dollar, all this. And I was like, Oh, you know, I have to like make some dramatic, you know, 
LeBron James choice or whatever where I'm going. <laughs> um, but uh, that was not it. Um, so my avenue into the MLR was very circumstantial um, and very happen chance. And so I graduated from UBC in 2020 and then moved to the Pride um, in September of that year to train with them and start, you know, to find my spot on a, on a national team, as I said. Um, and then through sort of my training with the pride, because it was 2020. So I actually didn't get a chance to play any games for pride. So I'm still uncapped, um, for them. Uh, I was invited to the, uh, camp that we had in, uh, November, that men's camp during COVID where we were all pretty much locked down in the hotel where we couldn't do very much for three weeks. And we had some games. Um, and that was my first involvement with the, the men's national team. And it was an incredible opportunity to be able to test myself in those games. Um, and that was essentially it. I played well in those two games. Um, I think I got the, like the player of the match for game two and had a few nice breaks and things like that. And the, Toronto Arrows were um, a, a part of that camp as well. Guys like um, Aaron Carpenter and Pete Smith um, were like the coaches of like, I think it was the Canada Red team. There was like the Canada Red and Canada Black. And so while one team was essentially the Arrows and then the other team was the Canadian team of all the other MLR players really. So I was on that Arrows team. And then after my performance in there, I sort of had some conversations with Pete Smith and Aaron Carpenter while they're like, Hey, I mean, you know, if you ever want to come to the MLR, like we'd be interested in, in you. And I was like, wow, like I, I, I never even thought about the MLR. I was just trying to, you know, play for my country, play sevens, you know, like be here in, in Langford and like play some rugby. Cause I hadn't really explored that opportunity. I didn't have an agent or anything. So that was like this new, new opportunity for me. And then that got me thinking, I'm like, well, like, I guess if the MLR is an option, well, like, I know some people that are involved in that scene, and hopefully I could ask them. So I asked uh, Jamie Cudmore, who was also at camp, who was uh, the Pride coach at the time. Um, it was him and Phil Mack with the Pride, and, and obviously now it's just Phil, um, who's doing a great job with the program, by the way. I don't think I spoke about the Pride earlier, but the professional training environment and the, and the strength and conditioning that we have in there is world-class and so i have great things to say about pride and what it's doing to transition guys into the mlr which i think is its primary goal and i think it should be as well anyways back to the story so i asked uh, cudmore if he knows anyone in the mlr that would be interested and he put a word out and scott murray with the san diego legion the forwards coach there he knew him and i guess they needed a flanker um and within a few days, I was approached about a contract with San Diego. So essentially I had two options. I had the arrows or San Diego, and those were my only two options. Um, that's all I had. Now the contracts were different between the arrows and San Diego. It was uh, a part-time player contract with the arrows and then a full-time player contract um, with San Diego for about the same, um, uh, for about the same cash if you were to like take the hours in one and sort that yeah. out. Um, so ultimately it really came down to sort of where I'd want to be and where I'd want to learn and where I think I would play um, some rugby. Now having, you know, played with the arrows guys and seeing the, 
the roster of guys that they had at the time, like Tommy De La Vega and Rumble. I was like, you know what? These are some really good, you know, like young flankers as well. I might not play a ton if I'm out there and like time zone change and things like that. So like, that's an option. And, and then there's uh, San Diego, which is same time zone, you know, great weather and all this other stuff. Plus I get the ability to learn from guys like Chris Robshaw. So there was certainly an aspect in there where I was like, okay, yeah, San Diego sounds like the best fit for me. Um, and that was the decision I made. Um, it didn't have anything to do personally with like the arrows for San Diego and the staff and management and whoever was there. It was purely where, where, where do I think I, I can learn the most and play the most? Um, and that turned out to be a really, really good decision that I made. Probably the, mm. probably the most important one that I've made in the past two years. So. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I got a couple questions that kind of uh, sprung from that answer. Um, so the first one being um, when you were initially approached by the arrows about joining MLR, you kind of mentioned that it was something that you didn't, hadn't really thought about yet. Is that is like the MLR still like, I know it's like, obviously it's a super new and young league. Is it something that um, players that are kind of in that, like, you know, play in university rugby now, is that something that there's kind of starting to think about now, or is it still like the idea of playing pro rugby in North America? Is that still something that kind of seems like maybe, maybe a little far off for a lot of players? I would say I was right in that transition time from going from, okay, university to pride, um, and then see what happens now, pretty much. I get texts from guys that go to UBC. They're like, Hey Mike, like how's the MLR? Like, would you recommend it? All this stuff. Like I want to play for Canada. How do I do it? Um, and now the pathway is very clearly laid out. you you go to university and you either get drafted into the MLR or you go to the pride first and then you get transitioned into the MLR. And so that is like quite clear now. And I think, I didn't really see that when I was in school back in 2020 um, because Cudmore had like approached me during that fall when I was playing UBC against pride. And he was like, Hey, I want you to come to pride. And then I was just like, my blinders on. I'm like, okay, I'm going to the pride. I want to play for Canada because I never really had an aspiration to sort of play pro and like have my job be playing rugby. It was my goal is to play for Canada. And like, that's what I want to do. Now the, now it's, become if you want to play for Canada you have to play at a higher level and you have to play in the MLR I I remember when I was in my first year at UBC I'd be playing club rugby on on a weekend and I'm playing against like Connor Braid playing for Castaways or James Bay or whatever club he was playing for and like those international guys were playing club on a Saturday I'm like why are they doing that I, I have no idea but that was what the model was and so that's the model that I got used to but now it's the model is get yourself into an MLR side or professional side pretty much as fast as possible. So you can start to develop as an athlete long-term and, you know, get paid to do it as well, because that's an important thing because um, the more guys that are sort of with pride, they're being compensated through the Pacific pride. And there's only so many. So the sooner you can get from pride into MLR, and then you get some higher level competition, kind of like that high school to premier club rugby app. I was uh, talking about it. You learn to grow up really quick. Right. And like the speed of pace and the practice training sessions and everything like that. So I, I, I think now that is in the minds of 
every aspiring university athlete in Canada that wants to go on is that, yeah, like get to the MLR. That should be a thing for you if you want to play for the national team. Yeah. So in saying that, like, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of things changing within Canadian rugby, North American rugby as a whole. So in saying that, like, if you want to play for the Canadian national team, you have to play an MLR. In the early days of MLR, I know like one of the major issues for a lot of guys, especially trying to play for an American team, was the visa issues um, if you were an uncapped player. Um, now for yourself, obviously you ended up signing with San Diego before earning your first cap. Um, so like how big of a challenge was that for you? And if, as you're saying, like it's going to become a pathway where it's like you got to play MLR if you want to be on the national team, is that becoming easier um, for guys that maybe are in similar positions of say, like going to pride um, and then playing MLR and then playing for the national team is like the, do you feel like the visa thing is getting a little bit easier or even, was it even a challenge for you? Or is that something that the league is getting a little bit more sorted out now? I'm really, really glad you asked me that because that was like, as I spoke there and I was like pride to MLR, long story short, my whole process with that was a nightmare. It was like, took three months um, of calls back and forth where it got sent to the visa office, then got rejected and sent back to me. So I got signed in like December and I didn't land in San Diego until like, well, actually I went to Las Vegas instead because our team was still there in, uh, in Las Vegas. I was there like mid-March or like end of March. So it, it was like took three and a half months and the process I hope has been getting easier um, for the new players that have entered the league, like guys like Emerson Pryor. Um, he didn't have any caps um, and he was able to play for Utah. So there might be some like family thing going on there or anything, but teams are definitely trying to exploit any loophole that they can get to get the players in. I think it just has a lot to do with who your lawyer is essentially because they were able to sort of, use the justification of my U20 caps and then assign the letter from Kingsley Jones saying like, this is a young prospective Canadian athlete, assign letter from Cudmore saying this is a young Canadian prospective athlete. And it's who's ever sitting at the visa office going like yes or no. And they might not know anything about rugby. Whereas it's probably the most important thing for developing young Canadian talent is not having it all concentrated at the arrows and getting more players and more teams spreading it out. So yeah. you have guys that aren't, you know, tripping over each other for starting spots. Right. And you get the variety of, of uh, perspectives and you get guys that play for championships teams like Quinn, right? Like Quinn Nwadi, he's on a championship team now. Right. And guys like Andrew Coe, I mean, he's a champion anyway. So um, <laughs> just like being a, being a UBC guy, I'm a big fan of Coe's. Um, so <laughs> Um, but yeah, it is a, it's a huge, huge issue. And so the ability for a guy, like it's sort of in two steps. It's like, if you can get into the pride and then through your experience with that, if you have a family connection in the States or something like a parent or a grandparent, and all of a sudden you can like get a work permit to go play in the States, like do it. And like, that's a huge advantage for you. But if you're a guy like Callum Botcher, like very, very good friend of mine, excellent pride player, um, has had like really good run with the pride and now has been rewarded by getting invited to a tour. That guy wants to play in the, uh, in the MLR more than anything. And like, uh, like I, 
I don't want to speak for him, but I just know that like, that's something that he's striving towards and something that he wants to do. You know, getting on that Canadian tour was a huge deal for him because he could potentially earn his first cap. And as soon as you earn your first cap, then you can like sign to an American team. It makes visa process very easy. Um, and so that was uh, like a big thing for that. Um, unfortunately, Calum didn't get his first cap on that tour. Um, do I think that was an oversight? Absolutely. Because getting a guy like that, a cap in two tests, especially a test against Belgium as well, that, you know, was essentially playing against a club side. Um, those are the things that for the next four to five years are going to be so important in developing a player pool for building for the world cup. Um, but I'm not a manager. I'm not a coach. I don't know the reasons that they have in doing the things that they do. But I think for Canadian rugby to grow um, and develop the player pool, it needs to compete for a world cup spot. It needs more players in the MLR and however we can do that to support those players. If we get better lawyers or getting players more caps on tours that they need to. Um, but that ultimately, you know, comes at the expense of um, playing a player that might not be ready to like win an international game, right? It would be very hard to, you know, start a guy like Callum against Spain, right? And yeah. so that, you know, could could be looked at in a different way where as a coach, your hands are tied. You're like, okay, do you want me to win this game or and play my best side? Or do you want me just to get players caps so they get free rides into the States? Like, I don't have the answers on that, but I know that like a combination of those and trying to win good games and getting players, their caps is going to be very important going forward. Um, so just to backtrack, cause you said because of the delays in your uh, visa, you joined the San Diego Legion in Las Vegas in 2021, which was a very uh, haphazard year if, in terms of uh, stadium choice because uh, the Legion announced that they would be playing the season in Vegas and then they ended up playing games at Dignity Health Sports Park. They did a doubleheader at the LA Coliseum. Um, they did end up going to Torero Stadium for two games, but I think they spent most of them at the Chula Vista Training Center um, what was it like being, and this is coming from like an Arrows fans perspective of the team being based in yeah. Atlanta, doing double headers themselves with uh, uh, Nola Gold at the um, gold mine. Um, but obviously as a player, what was it like to be told, okay, we're starting the season here and then basically bouncing around from different home stadium to home stadium? Yeah, um, I guess when I look back on that year, having my two options be the Arrows or San Diego, I was like, well, I probably would have been screwed anyways, just that having to move <laughs> around everywhere. So, um, no, I'm quite happy to, uh, that I picked San Diego. But, yeah, not having a home uh, like a home base, um, it was it offered some challenges in terms of getting comfortable with like your home grounds and the routine that you have before a game, obviously. Um, in all honesty, though, I was just really happy to be there. Um, so anywhere I went, I felt like I was able to adapt. I hadn't had that prior experience that guys like Chris Robshaw have had, you know, being at one stadium and getting, you know, your full routine and everything like that, being very comfortable, comfortable with that. Um, so from a personal perspective, it didn't bother me a whole lot, 
but I know from a team perspective, um, it was challenging for a lot of players, staff and coaches and the management themselves, like not being able to sell tickets for a game, which affects their bottom line and what they're able to do. Um, and yeah, so it was a significant challenge as well. And to not have, you know, like, uh, like a strong fan base as well. Um, seeing that at the sports deck that we had this year, while the field was less than ideal, um, having a consistent home crowd was very, very inspiring. And to have those same people come out that can cheer for you, that makes a huge difference as well, like anywhere you go. So if we're going down to Chula Vista, it wasn't really ideal for a lot of people to come. So you, you could say it had an effect on our year in some way. I mean, I think the, what happened during the 2021 year could be chalked up to a lot more than that. Um, mm -hmm. But certainly it was an adventure and seeing a lot of different places, but there is a, there is a strong benefit to having, you know, your home ground. Um, and I was happy to get that with the sports deck. Um, I was also happy to leave changing in a tent every weekend because we didn't have proper change rooms. <laughs> um, so that was very much a temporary holding space. And I know our team was happy to, get out of there but now we're going into snapdragon stadium and the boys are really really keen on that i even know some guys that are coming back for one last year just because of that really they're like i want you know one good last year to you know play my heart out in that stadium so i'm sure it'll be quite exciting um for next year as well so I want to finish finish the year in a proper changing room that sounds like a <laughs> exactly. dream of any uh, player in MLR. Um, so yeah, uh, so I was going to ask you to ask about Snapdragon Stadium, but you seem to have answered that. Um, but it seems as though the Legion were, uh, had a very interesting final few weeks of this season from being eliminated <laughs> from playoff contention to announce that Austin were disqualified. So there's a slim chance in because the Legion had a bye week for the final week as well. So you couldn't really do anything. You just had to watch the games and see what happened. And then it's announced that LA were also disqualified, putting you into the final slot for the... Yeah. Um, so was it a lot of packing your suitcase, unpacking it, repacking it, unpacking it again kind of thing? Or were you guys just always nose to the grindstone just waiting to see what happened and then ready to go when it came out you guys have obviously heard of a mad monday right yeah 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 did you yeah, guys like that? i think <laughs> i think we had like three of those <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was it was without a doubt one of the craziest experiences that i've ever been involved in from just like a stressful standpoint to also like a training standpoint and just like a, yeah, like a, you needed to be very mentally tough in those weeks in terms of, yeah. you know, like keeping the faith, but also being realistic about your chances and enjoying a proper end of the year as well. Cause for a lot of those guys, you won't see them ever again. Um, and so it was very interesting. Yeah. So before we played Austin, we actually heard, some rumors that Austin could potentially be kicked out of the league or anything. So e even before we played Austin, if we had beaten Austin with a five point bonus point, we would have been ahead of Seattle with that five points. So 
there was like this thing that's like, hey, this is all secret. It hasn't been announced. And it, they told us the morning of, they're like, if you beat them and get a five-point win, you're going to the playoffs. And we're all like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, it was something just kind of shocking to sort of spring on a team the morning of that game. So, so, it, so it was, is this conversation yeah. after you guys thought you were already eliminated initially? This conversation was after. So I think Utah played. Um, no, hold on. It was Houston played Seattle, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. It was a game that Houston got through even though they lost. Yeah. So Houston beat Seattle and kicked that final point to clinch the third the third spot in that game because they got their five points. I think, um, oh no, no. They got the bonus points. They got two points because it was a two point loss. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. So that was the Friday night, I think. Um, and then the Saturday morning, because, you know, we all see the result the Friday night, they're like, okay, guys, I mean, we play Austin. It means nothing. And then we have a meeting in the morning going, Hey guys, there's a potential that this could happen. And at that point, it was unprecedented that a team would get thrown out. So we all didn't think it was going to happen. We're like, 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 who knows, right? It's like, like, especially before the playoffs, like right before the playoffs, we all had no idea. So we go play that game and lose and it sucks. And it was, I guess, our last game of the year. But it was, it was weird because for guys like, um, you know, guys that potentially would be retiring and playing their last game we never really did a send-off for them you know um guys that didn't know because there was still this idea in our heads that it might not be our last so then we're like okay like let's go home and i guess we're still training so we train that whole week um like we had a, a night out in austin and then we came home and had another good night out and everything and it was good um, and then the conversations became a bit more serious. So we'd had our first Mad Monday. I think we got like Tuesday and the Wednesday off because it was still our bye week. So we're like, okay, we're still going to have time off even if we're in or out. So then I think we came back on the Thursday and I'm not sure when the announcement came out. I think it was the Thursday or Friday, but that's when it's like, okay, Austin's out, you're back in. And then we were back full training Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then we watched the game, um, Seattle versus LA and they win. And we're like, well, we're now, now we're out. Like now we're done. There's no chance of us getting back in. So round two for the mad Monday on that Monday. Now let's go out. Right now it's the, the, the end of the season. Then I think it was, this was crazy too. It was, we had already been out. And then it was like, um, like the Tuesday night at like, 10 30 p.m like we're all sitting around in our apartment complex that we have like our team owns some apartments shared apartments and there's like six of us um all in this complex and it's like 10 30 at night we're all just like winding down i've got a beer in my hand and our coach just sends this text in our chat and goes hey boys this is not a drill we are back in the word is is that la is getting kicked out in the morning if you're on the piss, get off it essentially. (laughs) So we're like, Oh my God, is is this for real? And then everyone kind of walks out of their apartment and everyone is doing that the exact same time. And it's just like, there's been an earthquake or something. It's like, did you all feel that Jesus? 
<laughs> right? <laughs> and so we're all standing around and it's like, we've just been told that we're out. Guys were flying out the next morning. Like guys had flights booked, oh. had had their bags packed. They were going to go see their wives and their kids. Mm -hmm. And so I was driving home with my girlfriend and we didn't really have a, like a certain day when we needed to be home. Cause I was just going to this tour for Canada, but guys like had things that needed to do. So it was, it, it was pretty tough on a lot of the guys that like were going to see their kids and had been on FaceTime telling them that they're going to be there. So it was quite tough for them. Um, but then we showed up at training 8am the next day um, and then got into it for the whole week and really just tried to prepare for a game that we didn't think we'd be in and then didn't perform our best against Seattle. And a lot of people would try to say, it's like, Oh, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't want that game. And that's why they didn't win all that stuff. We wanted that game and, you know, we tried our absolute best for it. Did we get the preparation that we needed before that game? No. Right. So there's a lot of things you can point to it as, but essentially the in and out of it, made it harder for us to perform well on that weekend but mm -hmm. we definitely wanted it we showed up we wanted to win and that 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 was our goal so then we lose to seattle and then third bad monday and then everyone was like i can't do this anymore <laughs> i don't want to <laughs> see any of you ever again let's go essentially <laughs> so we had a nice team end of the year banquet and then everyone was uh on their way. So yeah, a little story about the end of the year, San Diego, they'll be writing books about the years that San Diego has had these guys that have been in the COVID year. And then, um, the Chula Vegas, uh, year of traveling around. And then now the season that couldn't end year. So <laughs> it will be very interesting chapters in this MLR book that they'll write one day. So Chula Vegas and three Mad Mondays would be an amazing like Netflix special <laughs> an art series Netflix documentary called Chula Vegas or three Mad Mondays. It would be uh, like the most watched thing on the on the entire network. Um, yeah, that is. Uh, yeah, I don't even know how to process that. That's a crazy story. I don't think uh, nobody can question effort after going through two Mad Mondays before a playoff mm -hmm. game, though. So I don't know who's exactly that effort from San Diego. Yeah, that's some guys were sweating a little bit extra on the assault bike that week trying to you know burn those <laughs> burn those extra calories off and get and get uh get all ready to go again so yeah and uh so obviously you know talking about uh you know living now in the same like apartment complex with your teammates and stuff um the san diego legion obviously have some uh, you've mentioned them a few times through uh, throughout this interview obviously some pretty prominent names um within uh, rugby guys like uh, Ma Nanu, Chris Robshaw, um, Cecil Africa played there last year as well. What's it kind of like, uh, you know, sharing a pitch, uh, sharing a locker room with those guys? They just, they bring a sort of a wealth of experience and professionalism to a side that is one of the key factors about the MLR that I think is most important for those young guys to experience is that when you walk into a locker room with those guys there you're not in you're not at ubc anymore right where guys are just there sort of like like there to play a bit of rugby but you know not be super professional um and when you have guys like that there um you are able to see sort of the status of like 
they've been professional rugby players pretty much all their lives. They've achieved that, um, that, um, that ability to perform at the highest level and then environment, right. And be a part of that experience and see what it's like firsthand and see where, you know, you need to get to as an athlete, if you want to sort of be, be like that. So, um, it's in the way that they communicate to a room and like guys like Ma and Chris were like great leaders on our team, um, in sort of the things that they had to say to our team as a whole, but also one-on-one, um, the coaching that I would get, I would defend inside Ma pretty much constantly. And he was always in, in my ear talking to me and helping me and, um, able to sort of coach me on where I need to get, if he needs to get somewhere. And then Chris offering like a huge wealth of experience as an open side as well into, um, sort of where you need to be working around the park. It's not something that's, you know, their job to, you know, like be your coach and like tell you what to do everything, but just the ability to watch them in training and see what they do. Um, you're able to draw a lot from that instead of just seeing them play in a game, you, you get to see how they train and how they conduct themselves off the field as well, which really provides like a great insight into what it takes to be a professional. And it's also great because they're really nice guys and they're, you know, just guys, right. It's, I mean, Chris has like a great family. He's got a, he's got a, he's got a one-year-old kid and his wife is very nice. And they invite us to like their son's birthday party and everything. And like, they're just super like down to earth, genuine people. And then Ma's got his uh, family as well. He's got three kids um, and his wife is out there and Ma like loves to play cards. If you guys have ever played like Creek or anything like up the Creek, he's, he's that guy. That's like, all right, down at the table. Like we're serious. We're playing cards. Like, let's do this. Right. He's just like a, like a big kid all over again, you know, just loves that culture and loves the travel and the training and aspect of that. So um, yeah, you know, they're just guys as well. And it goes to show that, you know, you're a little starstruck in the beginning, but then, then you can get along with these guys and get to know them and good relationships with them. So, and that ability to see sort of another stage in life of where you are as a professional athlete, like I'm just starting out, I'm incredibly young. Um, don't have any of that same like family commitments and wealth of experience and that kind of thing but then seeing where you get to to players like that that are nearing their retirement age you can see sort of the progression that they've had and then you're able to see players in between as on MLR team like my roommate got engaged and he's like 28 and then another guy on our team just like announced that they're expecting and you're able to sort of see you know where your career could take you in that path of life and get some great advice from those guys as well in terms of what to do and where to play and how to train and stuff. So it's like, I think that MLR aspect is quite cool and seeing that. Um, But yeah. And also like those professional guys as well, um, having them around just uh, makes the environment all the better. So. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, we'll still uh, shift. Uh, Can't let you go without asking you some, uh, some rugby Canada questions. So um, what just, uh, you, as you mentioned, uh, you made your uh, test debut against Wales last year. Um, so what is just kind of uh, your feelings of playing? Your What was like your first cap experience, like your feelings of um, how are you feeling on that day, get, uh, knowing that you were uh, getting your first cap against Wales? 
even from the Jersey presentation that we had the night before, I knew it was sort of going to be a game like I I had never experienced. Um, Cudmore, when he was giving that speech to us, I think this was his first tour with the men's team where he was actually a coach and handing out jerseys. Um, He he was in tears when he was giving up the jerseys and like that jersey meant so much to him um and that was an incredible honor for him to do it and you could really feel the weight behind what you were um about to do and what the jersey meant to so many people and what it you know would mean to you as well and so even from that moment i knew it was going to be like quite um quite an impactful moment and it was and i remember being in the locker room going out there and it was particularly um profound because there were so many players all earning their first caps all at the same time so you got to be a part of all of that and i and i remember being in the change room and i didn't even start and i was like in tears already and just like going through the tunnel out on out on to the pitch for the anthems i was already fully into the emotion of it and then i came on at half um and so i got a good 40 minutes in my test and like obviously we didn't win and didn't perform as well as we could and it's not really okay to just like be okay with that and it's like oh you know i mean i got my cap like great and like oh who cares that we lost i mean all all those should be taken very seriously um i guess when you're playing wales though there comes a another kind of expectation of how you're supposed to perform against them so um but it did mean like a lot because that was my goal ever since i started playing rugby was to play for canada and play for team canada so that was sort of my whole experience and then you know um you go back to the hotel and you stand up on the chair, you put your cap on and you sing your first song and you skull a beer and, and all the rest of it. So keeping up the culture of the team as well, um, I think is incredibly important um, despite those losses, um, but wanting to sort of change that culture um, for the better and to, to like a culture that wins and, you know, a winning culture and one that isn't okay with a loss. Um, just getting to be a part of that sort of beginning of that um, and being involved at it from the start was incredibly impactful. So. Yeah. And uh, you kind of touched on it there. I mean, like the past year or two for uh, the men's national team has uh, uh, been, been a little tough, obviously uh, the, the biggest loss coming to, to Chile and meaning that Canada won't be in the world cup for the first time, but um, you're, uh, as you mentioned, 23 young player on this team, you're earning your first caps. What's it been like kind of coming into the national team environment at this sort of like pivotal juncture in rugby Canada's history. And um, have you starting to see signs of like that culture changing as uh, you just alluded to? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's um, from the time that I've come into the team, uh, you know, we haven't won a lot of games and we, we didn't win against the qualifier against the States. And then we lost to Chile and I've been on the bench for every single one of those. Right. So it's been, uh, it's, it was tough. And in terms of a time to come into the national team, it was very, very tough. 
um, trying to keep, trying to compete for your spot as like a young new player while also being aware of what's on the table for these players to win. Um, it's uh, you, you know, have to put your ego in check and you have to like leave that at the door. It's not about you. It's about the team. And that was like a hard lesson I learned playing against the States and St. John's as well, where I was on the bench that whole game and I didn't come off the bench and we won. It was a great success and everything. And you just, you know, it, it was tough. It was, it was very, very tough to, you know, see the success that the team had had, but not to be directly a part of it. Um, but it was something that in the moments that I had to reflect on the bench, it's like, I just need to be happy for the team and celebrate that success and keep it going. And that's exactly what I did. And I was out there, you know, high five and cheering with the boys and doing everything really, you know, trying to show to the coaches and to the fans and to everyone that the team is what's most important and the crest on the Jersey is what's most important. And you really got to leave your ego at the door in that way. Um, and then the same thing happened again in Langford, uh, when we were playing Chile as well. Um, like I had like my whole to the game and my girlfriend's family and everyone, and they had never seen me play for Canada and then still didn't get off the bench in that way. Cause it was a game that meant so much more to the country and everything. And so obviously those moments are tough. Um, but you have to, you have to, um, put your faith in, the players that are on the field to do the job and then the coaches to make the selections that they do. Um, and yeah, that's, you know, your job as a professional athlete is it's all about the team, right? So it has been tough, but it's been something that I would rather be a part of it than not. Of course, right. Mm -hmm. You want to be there. You want to contribute to it. You want to be in training with these guys and pushing them to be their best as you know they do the same for you to improve as a player and me getting to be a part of all those tests sort of saw the potential of what I could do and then getting the opportunity to play in San Diego again for the 16 games that I did I was able to really show you know like I deserve to be at that level and play at that level so that was really important for me personally but as a team I guess like sort of seeing what it was like for the guys to sort of go through all that when we lost to the States and then lost to Chile. Um, and these guys, these like long-term cap guys like DJ and Ardron and, um, you know, being in that change room and hearing what the coaches had to say and everything, it was, it was tough. It was very, very tough um, for, for everyone involved. Um, yeah. There's not a whole lot of words that can sort of talk about, you know, what you do in a moment like that where the conversations can't really happen right then. It's more, you just kind of need to grieve. Um, but I'm a strong believer in you have to learn from those mistakes, right. And you have to talk about it at some point and you have to see what happened leading up into that, that caused all that to happen. Now, like I'm not a coach or a manager and everything, so I can't really comment too much on that. Plus it was, you know, my first international experience really. So it's something that you, you, you're there and you do your job and you do it to the best of your abilities. And then you sort of have to, you know, put your trust and your faith in the coaches and the management, and then just like keep showing up every day to do your job and do the work um, and really try to push those standards and training and, and control what you can control. 
I think that's a thing that I was able to um, use to get through those moments is control the things you can control, right? Like have a good attitude, you know, like train hard, train well, work the hardest that you can. Um, but, but ultimately um, it's a team effort and a, and, you know, a team, a team responsibility when you fail. Right. So it, it has to be looked at from a team approach in terms of what were the pieces going into this. Um, and it's, and it's not, and it's not one thing and I don't think it's ever just one thing. Um, but it is something that has to be looked at. So. Yeah. And, uh, so obviously I guess the next game, at least the next game that we know about publicly is going to be an all blacks 15 later in October. Um, so like what's, I guess the next couple of months looking like for you guys, I'm assuming now that the MLR season's done these two games, maybe everybody gets a little bit of time off. I know you mentioned you're before you're kind of on a bit of a vacation, enjoying some family time right now. Um, but it's like, are, are you, is there plans to kind of like get back together soon? Have a, have a bit of a camp or how you guys going to approach like the next couple, uh, say, I guess the all blacks 15 being the only one we know about, but like the next couple of games. Yeah. Um, I wish I had more information, uh, to tell you because I because I absolutely would, but we've kind of been left in the, the dark a little bit about that. For the tests that we've heard about, like the All Blacks 15 as well, will be an incredible test and hopefully something that we're able to sort of use those prior tests to lead up to as well. But for now, it's we're being sent programs by our RS and C, and guys have sort of all gone home and they're staying fit at their home clubs. And some guys are with Pride, like I'm going back to the Pride on Sunday. Um, to do my training on the island, but we're all sort of uh, taking some time to ourselves um, and trying to, you know, get ourselves in the right uh, framework to come into a camp like that and go full steam ahead, right? You've got to keep doing that work all along because you can't show up to camp and just start doing that work now. So, Yeah, absolutely understandable and um yeah, it's obviously something that's been considered, especially when you look at um, how Uruguay and Chile have progressed over the, uh, well, since uh, 2019 and now that they're uh, both now qualified for the Rugby World Cup and how things have changed there. And obviously, um, you understand that by not qualifying for the World Cup, it allows Canada to do um, matches where maybe the goal is... Um, drawing a crowd, drawing uh, ticket interest. Obviously, the games against Wales and England were originally planned to have been held in Canada, and that's ticket revenue that never happened. So maybe this is a game that does. And by being a All Blacks 15, it's an uncapped game. And, you know, we're hoping that uh, you and the boys will be going to Europe, playing um, some more games as you did um, last year in November obviously against Portugal and Belgium. Uh, that game against Belgium probably didn't go as well for you as you personally hoped, but uh, obviously the uh, the return fixture in Canada did go slightly more to uh, what you were hoping for. Um, yeah, I, I was able yeah. to get my redemption and uh, yeah. Phil Mack tapped me on the shoulder before the game and he goes, all right, Mike, let's have a good 80-minute performance out of you today. And, <laughs> you know, you're constantly reminded of that but you know in a way um i'm you know i was able to bounce back from some 
something like that happening and have a good year in San Diego. So, but yeah, it was good, I how, guess. <laughs> so how cool was it? that All three uh, Legion players on the Canada roster got to try in that game. That was, that was cool. That was, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, we uh, uh, got a few good, good comments from all the boys at home about it. So uh, that was nice. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It, it was good. Perfect. And uh, we'll let's try to end with a little bit of uh, fun. Um, and uh, obviously the vast majority of this conversation has kind of been about rugby. Um, what are the, some of like your hobbies, interests, um, things that you're going to do to relax, as you mentioned, a little bit of family time on this cup um, coming up in this couple of weeks. So it's something uh, uh, Michael Smith does to kind of unwind uh, when he's not playing rugby. Uh, well, Something I'm sort of like uh, gotten into more recently um, because of being in in San Diego as well. I've uh, I've uh, taken a keen interest in surfing, and um, as one does uh, being in San Diego, you cannot get away from it. So, planning a trip to Tofino next weekend, um, and uh, hopefully, can get some of that West Coast surf as well, and see if the water is any warmer. Um, uh, it will not be than, than in San Diego. Um, but yeah, just like a lot of outdoorsy activities and things like that. Um, I, I stayed for a few extra days in uh, the nation's capital over there in Ottawa um, be, before I came over here to uh, Toronto to see family. And I was able to go to the museum and like the natural history museum and stuff like that. So still love to learn even being outside of school as well. Um, but uh, yeah, just generally pretty easy things and like, you know, spending time with family and my partner as well. So uh, yeah, it's uh, all good things that hopefully we're able to do um, during the off season as well. Cause when you're in a pro rugby season, you don't get free weekends, right? You don't get a lot of consecutive days off as well. It's a lot of day trips. So you try to take advantage of all those days that you can get while you can. So. Yeah. Um, during the broadcast of, uh, I believe it was the Belgium game. I think the Gareth Reese kind of mentioned you're like working on a, a medical degree. Is that something that you're, uh, you're still pursuing currently, even though you're like, while you're playing professional rugby, both for the Legion and Canada. Yeah. The story of me going to medical school, that was kind of a story that I wanted to tell at some point during this podcast, because it's a story in and of itself. So when I graduated in 2020, um, I did a science degree at a UBC in pharmacology, which is a type of uh, science uh, degree that they offer. And COVID had happened, didn't really know a lot of what was going to happen playing rugby. So I thought, well, the next stage in my career and what I want my future career to be is to be a doctor. So I decided to apply for, uh, for medical school. So I, the, Applications are due in like September. Uh, so I put in my application in September of 2020. And then it's a very long a application cycle. Uh, so mm -hmm. I did all my applications, did my interviews, did everything. And then I think it was like the Friday before we played New Orleans down in Chula Vista. Um, I got an email from UBC saying I got accepted to medical school. And that was in like May of 2021. And, you know, like getting in to medical school in Canada is like a huge deal, right? Even just yeah. that, that thing of that. So I was incredibly excited and I was like, this is absolutely incredible. This is what I want to do. 
you know, it's something that was really, really cool. And I had done all of this sort of before the MLR was even an option to me as well. Then it comes around where I go to England and Wales, and then I get invited to come to the qualifiers and the qualifiers were in August and September. And essentially I'm like, okay, so I have to go to school, but I also want to, you know, play in these. Um, how am I able to do that? So I sort of called the school and I was like, Hey, like, is there any way I can take like the first two weeks off school and go on these trips? Or can I do it online? Can I do something right? Can I try to make it work to do a little bit remotely? Because it was still during COVID. I thought there still might be some flexibility there, but they, they essentially said, no, like it's your first year. All this stuff is like very mandatory in-person orientation stuff like that we need to do. Um, so we need you in person. So I'm like, okay, shoot. Like, well, what options do I have? Like, I want to play for Canada. This is what I want to do. Um, how can I make this work? And they go, you can defer for one year. Hmm. So I'm like, I want to play for Canada. Okay, I'll do it. So I, I was able to secure a one year deferral to play for Canada. And that was the primary purpose of that. Um, and then was able to go to San Diego again and play in the summer and everything. I was able to do all that. But all throughout that, I always knew that I was going back to school because essentially I had to, because you only get the one year deferral. And then after that, it's okay. You come to school or you give up um, your spot to another person. And with the Canadian medical system, how it is for the schools, like that spot is never a guarantee. If I wanted to apply again in the future, I wrote my MCAT, which is the admissions test. I wrote that in 2020. Um, and that test is only good for, I think it's five years. So if I wanted to apply again, I would have to write the whole exam again. Um, your extracurriculars and the things you had done during university and your grades are only good for like six years. So all the things I had done in university wouldn't count. Um, so it was the decision I then made where it's like, okay, like, do I give up that spot and continue to play rugby full time and do that? Or do I go to school and get a head start on my career that I want to do beyond rugby and try to make it work, you know, try to have a new relationship with rugby um one that can accommodate my medical schedule as well as playing rugby um and so long story short i'm going to school um so i've got school starting august i think it's 22nd um out at ubc but it's my ongoing intention because i'm only 24 that i want to remain involved in the in the system as like as really as much as I can um, in any way that I can. I know it's not ideal. And, you know, for a young aspiring athlete, that is hopefully a part of that 2027 World Cup squad and 2031. Um, that's not really the thing that a coach wants to hear or a guy's hosting a podcast. They want to hear being like, oh, this guy, you know, he's, he's not going to be playing pro rugby full time anymore. He's going to school. Um, so I hope I haven't spoiled the interview or, um, been like, oh, well, I mean, this guy's a sellout or anything like that. Um, mm. I kid, but, uh, yeah, it's a thing that I know that I've spoken with Kingsley about and like 
Bill Mack about and even my coaches in San Diego as well. And I guess I have the benefit of having had a good year in San Diego because the, because the response I got from them was like, we want you back in any way that you can. Like if you want to fly in on a weekend um, that you're free, um, if you want to school, it goes from August to April. So my last exam would be April 20th. So they're like, we will book you a flight April 21st. We'll fly you down. We'll play you for the last eight games. Yeah, and and I'm like, that's awesome. Like that yeah. is unbelievably awesome that you guys can, can accommodate that schedule. Surely all MLR teams will need some players in the back half of the year due to injuries and yeah. all these things for their ability to accommodate me is like unbelievable. And the same with team Canada as well is that, the program that I've chosen out at UBC is actually based on Vancouver Island. So I'll be studying at UVic, but then I'm able to train with the pride in the evenings and then be a part of their training environment, hopefully get some games in on a Saturday. So essentially like I'm not retiring from rugby. I just have a new relationship with it where I know school will take priority because it is a medical yeah. degree. And I know that I'm going to have to put in a significant amount of time in to that and I know my priorities are going to change over the past two years but I'm only 24 years old and I feel like I still have a lot left to give and hey I graduate in 2026 and then I can take some time off between school and my residency and if there's a chance we could go to the world cup I want to put my hand up for that and I want to be pushing those guys that are in that squad to yeah. know that like hey like if you're not trying your best like I'm going to be there Right. And it's really all about the team in that and not, and not me is that I've earned my caps. I've had two really good years playing for San Diego full-time. Now I'm sort of transitioning to the student athlete role again and whatever works, it works. And I've told people as well, like, well, if San Diego, they don't want you back because they're full of guys and they don't have any cap left for you or anything like that. Like, is that okay with you? And I'm like, well, you know what? At least I tried. Yeah. And then there might be another MLR team that, that might be interested in me. Right. Or yeah. I might not be able to be involved with uh, the all blacks game this fall, but I could be involved in the July test next summer. Yeah. And like make myself available as best I can and then see sort of, you know, what accommodations are able to be made. So like, it's not goodbye. It's just like a new relationship I'm going to have with rugby. So yeah. And it's not something I guess I've announced super publicly as well. I've said it in a few interviews and I've talked to Gareth Reese about it, obviously, because you've heard about it from the broadcast. Um, but yeah, it's like, like, I guess the bed that I made for myself. So I got to lie in it. Right. <laughs> Well, when we had uh, DTH Van der Moe on the podcast um, two was it two years ago now? One year, year and a half? Times times of flat. I have to say it's the first yeah. LP year. Yeah. Like, um, like pandemic. Um, yeah, that's and um, he stressed the importance of having the second career ready because, as we know, in any professional sport, not just rugby, there's always a time limit on what you can do and you need to have something behind the scenes. And, you know, not everyone can be commentating on Rugby Canada games when they retire. So you need to have something in the bow. So 
and yeah, and like you said, it's not stopping one thing to doing another. It's taking a sidestep and doing both and seeing what works for you. And obviously, you know, these Mickey Mouse degrees, like medicine and all that, and the doctorate <laughs> and stuff like that. I'm sure you'll be able to work it out somehow. Hopefully. I appreciate that uh, that optimism. Yeah. It's um I, I've seen guys and I stress a lot to those guys that play university rugby is that like finish your degree, right? It's super important to have ongoing into playing in the MLR. And I know players that I've played for with San Diego as well, that um, they work part-time as, as well as playing. And I'll tell you, these computer science guys that are able to like earn good money and work remotely and have job prospects after rugby, they've got it made. Like I envy them so much. I'm like, is, is there a way that I can still do that? Right. Because <laughs> like, you know, I'm not going to be buying a home and raising a family on an MLR salary. Really. It's, yeah. it's, it's still not really there. So to have something set up for after rugby as well. I mean, my passion is to go into healthcare and go into medicine and has been ever since I started like my high school career and, and university. So I still want to do that. But, you know, to be encouraging for other young athletes as well as to still have that idea in the back of your head. And what are you doing in the off season and during the year to go forward with that? Right. And you may still be discovering it as well. And that's fine. Right. Is that um, like if you have those opportunities to like still try to take advantage of them. So. All right. Well, I think we're going to end it there. Michael, thank you ve so very much for joining us for this um, interview. Uh, Derek, thanks for helping with the questions. And thanks to all of you who um, watch and listen to our podcast. Um, you can find us across social media at La Rouge Rugby. That includes Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, Michael, if uh, people would like to follow your happenings, whether it's uh, with the Legion or as you're progressing with your medical medical degree, where can uh, they find you? Uh, I mean, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, it's pretty hard for a guy named uh, uh, with uh, with uh, my first and last name to find a handle on Instagram or Twitter. <laughs> like, there's tons of Michael Smiths out there, and so it's crazy. Uh, but uh, my Instagram is at m s m i t a y. So m s m s Mite, really um it, it's an odd one um but it's one of the only ones i could find so yeah they can they can find me there <laughs> derek where can the fine people find you on social media uh, i'm at preset the jet across all social media platforms and you can find me across social media platforms at hardman spelled h4r-d-m-a-n Michael, once again, thank you for joining us and thank you all for joining for this special edition of the Rouge Rugby Podcast where we focus on Canadian rugby. We hope you can join us again when we return next time. Thanks.